So, <clears throat> yeah, we serve a God who is great, don't we? Um, no puny gods here, just the one true one, and he is great. So, today's Mother's Day, and uh, I will just briefly say that Mother's Day is a, is a joyous day. Mothers are to be celebrated, but it is always a mixed bag of a day, much like Father's Day is sometimes. Uh, when you think of your mom, I was blessed to have a wonderful mother who loved the Lord and taught me to walk with God and praise Jesus for, for Ruth. Everybody who knows my mom loves her, so <laughs> Yeah, so um, not everybody has a mom who walks with the Lord. And so Mother's Day means that you may have a broken relationship with your mom. Your may, mom may no longer be on this earth and you may miss her. Um, you may not know who your mom is. See, brokenness invades everything, even the most sacred of relationships, like a mother and a child. And so some of you desire to be a mother and are not, and that is painful. And so we live in a world that is broken, and you cannot forget that. And so on Mother's Day today, um, just want to, oh, yes. This car is a white Ford Explorer, license plate DHE157, parked in the back row. It's about to get towed. It's yours. White Ford, no shame. No shame, go. We'll go. Do not get towed. I will go. No shame. There's no, there's a shame-free zone. You go move that car. And we'll be here when you get back, Brian. I mean... Like you guys aren't dealing with enough already, right, Missy? So if your car gets towed, I'm going to go get it out. So that's, that's enough of that. So real life, people, we live in a broken world. So where your car gets towed, I mean, anyway, golly. All right, who's towing cars on a Sunday? Come on. All right. Anyway, I'm going to reserve judgment for a while. But anyway, got me all fired up. Just leave it be. Okay, so here we go. Um, Mother's Day. Just... Remember that, okay? If you have a mom, call her. If, uh, and all those things that get wrapped up in Mother's Day, just remember that God is God over all of that and that wherever you are in that, in that series of things, there's brokenness involved and that the Lord can restore those things and that we can always press into him. So with that, we're going to jump into 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, which doesn't really have anything to do with mothers, but... Ironically enough, uh, a mother and a grandmother are talked about in this, so that is not why I planned this. We're not going to focus on that, but we will kind of touch it as we leap over into something else. So we're in 1 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 3 through 12 today, mostly focusing on kind of the latter half of this passage. And, you know, we live in a time, I think, I say that all the time, but when I say we live in a time I think that every believer in all of time has been able to say, we live in a time that fill in the blank, right? Where fear is a problem, where uh, faith requires uh, effort, where um, we have to choose to walk with the Lord, where grace is needed. So this, it is no different 2,000 years ago when Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, this wonderful pastoral letters. This is the last letter that Paul would have written. He is in prison. He would exit prison to be beheaded and go on to glory. And so this is the last words of the Apostle Paul, this letter. It's filled with this wonderful, tender, deep relationship that he had with Timothy, who was his spiritual son, and but whom he had great love for. So before we dive in, Let's pray and see what the Lord wants to teach us. Heavenly Father, we do come to you today, and we love you and we need you. Uh, we give you praise for just the, the, the office of, of mother, that each person who's sitting here has one, and we just give you praise for that. You praise for the life that you have given us, the life that you gave, the people who cared for us, whoever those people were. Help us to entrust all these things to you. We come to your word today in need of encouragement, in need of being confronted with the truth, in need of your spirit teaching us what we need to know. And so we ask for your help today as we enter your word. Help us to put aside the things that we think um, and just truly think what your word says. As your text says it, so may we live it. Lord, I know that every person in here is just in need, including me. And so in that realm, as we ask 
often that you would pray and ask the Lord to teach you something today. So just take a moment, pray and ask the Lord to teach you whatever it is that he wants to teach you today. And then as we often do, pray for someone around you, your spouse or your kid or the person in front of you or behind you, whose name you just, you don't know or person you just met. Pray and ask that the Lord would teach them this morning, that they would listen to what he has to teach them, that they would be encouraged and challenged today. Lord, we come to you knowing that you're worthy of our trust and asking for your help. Would you be glorified in, in our worship of you today? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 starts with this. Uh, I thank God, whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. So you see this structure here after his uh, introduction in verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul starts with this wonderful gratitude that he has to the Lord, who he serves, and that he serves with this clear conscience. You see this clear conscience and sincere faith, faith it, it harkens back to what he's telling uh, Timothy and 1 Timothy chapter 1, like the, the goal of our instruction is love with a, uh, with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This wonderful truth that Paul is serving God. This is, remember, this is Paul, as Tripp talked about last week, that that was complicit in the murder of believers. And so, but now, because of grace, because of God's transformative work, is able to serve him with a clear conscience. And he remembers Timothy in his prayers. And he says, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. There's this really beautiful picture we get into their relationship, that they were separated. He was traveling. He was doing uh, uh, multiple trips, uh, mission trips to uh, basically plant churches, bring the gospel where it hadn't been, and, and leave people there to raise up elders. And he was currently in prison and could not be around Timothy. And he, but the, to seeing him would fill him with joy. And I think anybody who's ever loved another person and been separated from them knows what that feels like. He said, I've been reminded of your sincere faith. And look at this. There's this wonderful thread here from his grandmother, Lois. So this is, this is not a long time ago. This is not much more than a generation since the initiation of the gospel, right? So you've got this grandmother, Lois, who had this sincere faith. And his mother, Eunice, also had this sincere faith. And he said, I'm persuaded, now lives in you. It's this wonderful picture of generational faithfulness and the blessing that can come from generational faithfulness. So just as an encouragement to you ladies out there, walk, as we talk through today, as we talk through what we're going through today, the, the life that you live really matters. Of course, it matters for you men too. Uh, it matters for all of us that the life that we live echoes down the generations for positive in, in Lois and Eunice's case, or obviously for negative. All of us have both experienced or know someone who is suffering from just generational sinfulness. And you can see that just stain people's lives. But in Timothy's case, he had this grandmother Lois and this mother Eunice who had this deep and sincere faith in the Lord Jesus. It's this beautiful picture that we see. And so he says in verse 6, Because of that faith, the sincere faith that lived in your grandmother and your mom, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame or to kindle afresh or rekindle the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hand. So 
there's this, this, uh, this idea of, of Paul laying hands on it and imparting this gift to Timothy. And so what is this gift? Uh, as we go through the context of here, I think that the gift is probably um, the spiritual gifts that Timothy needed as a, as a planter of churches, as, a, as an evangelist, and as someone who would raise up elders, leaders to uh, run and, and manage and shepherd these churches. So the gifts that he would have for that. For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. But you know, I think of this idea of a gift of God is broader than that. Like if you look back at Romans 12, um, starting in verse 3 or 4, where Paul is talking about, right after this, this beautiful passage in 12, 1 through 3, right after he talks about, you know, that this, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices and not be transformed to the world, uh, conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He says, this is uh, 12.5, So in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We each have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This idea that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the body of Christ to minister to the body and also to minister the gospel outside and to give testimony to a lost and fallen world. And Timothy, like every believer, had been gifted for the task which God had put him, put before him. So, when you look at, like, applying this, we're going to get to that in just a minute, but this idea that every believer has a gift and a reason to exist inside the body. Every single one. That's what Paul just said. Every believer has different gifts. And so, just like in a body, the picture of a body is that knees do knee things and fingers and elbows do elbow things and, and eyes and ears do... You don't get mad at the eye. For, you know, all this, there's this wonderful picture of the human body and as a picture of the body of Christ that each one of us in here in this church are individually members of the body, this local body of believers. And if you're here, you have a purpose. You have a gift. If you have received Christ Jesus as your Savior and are a believer, you have been given spiritual gifts to use for the edification of the church and for the, the furtherment of the gospel. It's just true. And that is all wrapped up in your, what I'm going to just term as your spiritual life. You have a life that is a spiritual life. You are a physical being. You have an immaterial self. You have a mind, a will, and an emotions. And created in God's image, we have a spirit. We are spiritual creatures. There's a lot of teaching today that denies that we are spiritual creatures, that all that is just made up uh, hullabaloo, but it isn't. It's true. And we'll get into some of the reasons and some of the, uh, the uh, confidence that we can have in the truth of that. But the reality that you have a spiritual life and we need to rekindle that thing. We'll talk about that more in a minute. So he says this. I want you to fan this thing, flame this, uh, fan this thing into flame. Why? For God, in verse 7, did not give us the spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear. The, the root word there is, is really one of, of, um, of fright. Like he doesn't give us a frightful spirit. And it's not like the fear, like the fear of the Lord. This reverent awe of the Lord, like you're standing before God and you're trembling because of his holiness. It's this idea of cowardice and timidity, and it's never, it's always negative. Uh, it's this idea of, of, of a lack of courage, really, and um, a lack of a firmness of purpose. And because you don't understand the purpose of your life, you lack the courage to do what you should be doing. That's what he's talking about. God has not given us to that. He has not given us a spirit of cowardice or of timidity, or a spirit with a lack of purpose. And then you have these wonderful contrast words in the Bible. Anytime you're studying the Bible and you see the word but, you want to figure out why it's there. There's always going to be something before and the something contrasted after. He did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity, but what did he give us? A spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. It may say self-control. It may say have a sound mind. That This idea of, of a spirit of, of power, a very common a word in the Bible, um, you see it all over the New Testament, this idea that the, the power of, of God raised Jesus from the dead. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We have lots of, it's, it occurs all the time. The root word is where we get the word dynamite from. It's this idea of power, that we lack power to live the life that God wants us to live, and so he gives it to us. And then a spirit of love, this is the word agape, this selfless love, this not just this love like, hey, I love you, man, but this idea of I will give my life for you. It is a selfless love that denies itself and lives for the betterment of the other person. And of self-discipline, that word for self-discipline, really the root word of that is, uh, 
it's this idea of restoring your senses, almost like slapping somebody back uh, who's going crazy, right? Like they're oh, losing their mind. You smack them, and it, not that you, I didn't want to use smack people, but like, hey, snap out of it. Like someone's just going bonkers. You know, okay, I need you. Focus. We need to be back here. But this idea of, 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 uh, of moderation, of soundness of mind, and of soundness of, of, of reason, of really this, a mind that is not in chaos. That's this idea of self-discipline or self-control. It's really fascinating, right? You think about, oh, yeah, power. Yes, more power. Empower me, Jesus. Love. Yes, let me love people. And then he's like, now I have some self-control. What? That is not near as fun. But it's in here. So the answer to a timid spirit is the spirit of God, which is one of power, of love, and of self-discipline or self-control or of a sound mind. Just this idea of freaking out is not that. Like when you're losing your mind, that is not self-discipline or self-control. And I know this because like just yesterday I got mad because I'd bought a host prayer at, at, at Walmart. And we go through these things like candy. I cannot seem to get one that works. I would pay like a million dollars for a host prayer that lasted the rest of my life. But they don't. And something in there breaks. And like you squeeze the thing and it's like, oh, it's working great. Watering flowers, yay. And then it like blows water back on you. I'm like, why is this not working? I just bought this. And then you unscrew the thing I'm trying to fix it. And some other part shoots out and I try to put it back together. Anyway, <laughs> threw it across the yard. So that is not a spirit of self-control. So that is not what I was doing. I was not uh, living in the power of the spirit with a, a spirit of love and of self-control. At that moment, I chose instead to just be mad and to throw something. So don't do that. But... You can always serve as a bad example if you're not doing anything else. So there's this first command here really is I want you to fan into flame or rekindle. So rekindle this thing, and God is going to give us what we need to do that. And then let's keep reading here. Verse 8. So it says, do not be ashamed. To do what? To testify about our Lord or of the testimony of our Lord. What is the testimony of Jesus? It's the gospel. It is that he came and he died on a cross for our sins and he rose from the dead, conquering death. We're going to get into that more in just a second. But this is, this is the testimony of Jesus. It's not that Jesus is all these things that people make up. It is who, who was Jesus, who is Jesus, and what did he do? Well, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He claimed to be God. And if you read the Gospels, you can't get away from the reality that Jesus is God's son. And he came and lived a perfect life to satisfy the, the, the wrath of God that was on us because of our sin. And then he died on a cross because of those sins. And in doing so, took all the sin of the world on himself. And right before he died, was able to say, it is finished. He had completed the, the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And then he died. And then he rose. He was buried. And then he rose from the grave with, in victory over death. And if we believe in him, we will be saved. This is the testimony of Jesus. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, or ashamed of me as his prisoner. See, Paul is, he's really changing the vocabulary that we would use to describe all of life. The, the, the church would have a very different vocabulary than the world. Like when we say, okay, what is victory? Well, for Jesus, victory was dying and then raising from the dead. For Paul, victory for him, where is he? He's in prison. What's going to happen to him? He's going to get his head cut off, which means to die. He's going to be killed. He's going to be martyred. This, the, this, the, uh, the government of Rome is going to put him to death. That's what's going to happen to Paul. And yet, he's saying, don't be ashamed of me. I have not failed, is what Paul is saying. Christ did not fail when he died. He did not fail when he, when he, when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and, 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 and did all the things that he's done and, and has given the Holy Spirit to his church. It's not failure. Paul is not a failure either in prison, and we are not to be ashamed of those who are. But for the world, going to jail is like, that's kind of losing, right? You can't be out doing your thing if you're dead. But what does he say? Join with me in suffering for the gospel. He is inviting us away from comfort and to run into suffering. Sounds super fun, right? Put that on a shirt. Join with me in suffering. It's this idea, listen, I'm in prison because I'm doing these things. This is what he's getting ready to say. Join me. Join me in suffering what? For the gospel. There's no better suffering in the world than suffering for the gospel. Not so that you can, not suffering because of some legalistic something, 
like I'm, I'm preaching this or I'm doing this, and so, oh, I'm suffering, woe is me. No, but because you are giving the testimony of Jesus and to suffer because of that, that is a blessing in the eyes of the Lord. How are we supposed to suffer for the gospel? First, by the power of God. We don't just suffer in our own power. We don't just be like, oh, I just need to just suck it up and just get better. No, I don't just need to be tougher. No, we suffer for the gospel according to the power of God. What does this power of God accomplish? Remember, he's given us a spirit of power. What has it done for us in verse 9? He has saved us and called us to a holy life. Your version may say it called us with a holy calling. But the reality that God has not only saved us from our sin, but has then called us to live a life that is holy, that is set apart, and that looks like the life of Jesus. It's amazing. Not just a life where I can say, okay, now I'm saved, and by grace I can go and do whatever I want to. Paul in Romans 6 says, you cannot do that. He says you're saved by grace through faith so that you can now live the life that you were intended to live, a life of holiness. And look at this, not because of anything we have done. It's amazing. But because of his own purpose and grace. It is God's purpose for you. People have asked, yes, this question. We know what is my purpose for my life? Uh, What is God's purpose? What does God want me to do? Well, God wants you to be saved and he wants you to live a holy life, okay? The details of all that, I don't know. Like, should you live in Chicago or Denver? I, I don't know. That's not all that important. We ask all these, what does God want me to do with questions that probably aren't really that important. Like, what kind of car does he want me to get? I I I guess God cares. I don't want to say what God does and doesn't do. But I know that he wants you to be saved. And he wants you to live up, to live the holy life that he's called you to. So he has a purpose in that and his grace. Look at this. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Grace is unmerited favor. That's why he's just said, not because of anything we've done, but Because of God's purpose and God's grace, we can now live, we can be saved and live a holy life. And he goes on to describe this grace. This is mind-blowing. Watch this. Given to us in Christ Jesus. So the grace is always, comes with Christ. It's not like there's no grace apart from Jesus. So in Christ Jesus, we have this grace that was given us when? Before the beginning of time or uh, from time uh, eternal or from time immemorial, like this idea of, it's these two different words, the word for time, chronos, and then this other word that means a no beginning and no end, something that, has, that is undefined because it is endless. Does that make sense? So it's, you can't define the boundaries of this because it does not begin and it does not end. It is, by nature, endless and eternal. This grace in Christ was given us from time eternal. That means the quality of this grace is the same. It is, it has no beginning. It has no end. It is boundless. It is undefined. It is eternal. It is immortal, as the word we're going to look at in just a minute. It is grace, God's grace. And it never began and it never ended. How is that? Because it is a quality of God's character. And he is preexistent. He existed before. He exists outside of all that we consider to be time. So because he is eternal, all of his qualities are eternal, limitless, infinite. So you cannot use up the grace that God gives you. He doesn't like give you a gallon of grace and he's like, you know, you're going to want to meter that out. You don't want to run out before you're 40. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work. If I was going to ask you, okay, you're, you have... Let's say you could drink salt water. Okay, you can drink salt water, so go to the ocean anytime you need. You need to get a cup. Like how many, how many cups of ocean water, it would never end. I don't know how many bazillion, trillion, gazillion gallons of water there are in the ocean, but it's a lot. And the ocean has a limit, right? So if you're going to ask how much grace does God give me, the answer is all of it. Well, what's the limit to it? Well, it can't have a limit. Why not? Because it's limitless. What does that mean? It means it's boundless because by nature, God's grace has always existed. You cannot come to the end of it. But now in verse 10, this grace was given to us, but now has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who did what? What did Jesus do? He destroyed death. This is what he did when he rose from the dead. He conquered death. The wages of sin are death. Jesus paid the penalty for the sin, died, and then when he rose from the dead, he destroyed death. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
Jesus rose from the dead and will never die again. God says that we will be like that. You're, you, who you are right now, this person that you are right now, this is not all that there is. You see how Paul is totally flipping on its, on its head the vocabulary that we use. We view all of life as this little thing that we live between when we're born and when we die. That's not life. Look at what he says. He says he destroyed death and has brought life and what is that word? Immortality. Do you know that you and I live in a, we live in this, the old writers called it a mortal coil, this body that will die. I mean, man, I'm only 45 and I'm in desperate need of an upgrade already. I really am. Like we just worked in the yard yesterday and like my hamstrings are tight because I was planting flowers all day. I mean, really? Ugh. Jenny cut my hair. There's less of it every time she does it. I, I need an upgrade. I need, I need a new body already. And I'm not even like, I'm like halfway through this one. The older you get, everybody keeps telling me, just hold on. Like, uh, so I need an upgrade. Why? This body is not eternal. That's why, that's the whole picture of the resurrection. He died and was raised again to newness of life and has given us that same quality of life. He's been parted in us the spiritual quality of eternal life. But we live in these physical bodies in a physical broken world that are going to die there's only two ways out of this thing, death or rapture. That's it. There's not another option. And the only way that this body gets made new is through death. But that's not the end of the story. There is a resurrection. When you read through the end of the book, there is a final resurrection for, the, for those who put their faith in, in Jesus, and it is forever. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no tears and no sadness. And heaven is not dying and going up and floating around and doing whatever and being like a fat baby in the clouds with wings on. I don't know what those things are, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we will live in a resurrected body. Why? Because he's given us life and immortality. So that means that this thing is not all there is. So stop living like that's all there is. Life and immortality to light through the gospel. There is no life, there is no immortality apart from the gospel. It does not exist. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not what I said, it's what Jesus said. The only way to hope and life and immortality, the only way to escape this broken thing in which we live is to put your faith in the Lord Jesus and he will give you new life. And you can experience that life today and then we have an eternity of experiencing the immortality that Jesus gives us by his resurrection. Mind-blowing stuff, right? It's crazy. Verse 11, and of this gospel, the gospel is great. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, right? So a herald is someone who says, hey, here's the gospel, like heralding, saying what's saying. Uh, An apostle, he had the authority to go out, and Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. He has this apostolic power that he had, and then as a teacher. So he's, he spent most of his time teaching people the truth of the word of God and writing it down. And that is why I'm suffering. Why is he suffering? Because he is a herald, an apostle, and a teacher of what? Of the gospel. And the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, on planet earth will always bring suffering. Do you hear me? You've heard us say this a whole bunch of times to reject the concept of a prosperity gospel. We have a gospel that brings life and immortality, but with it also comes suffering. And the suffering comes because we still live in a fallen world, and we still have an enemy who comes after us, and we still have a flesh that causes us destruction when we walk in it instead of in the spirit. Walking with Christ will cause you to suffer on some level. It also will bring you all the glorious things of being with Jesus, faith and hope and love. It will bring you uh, these... Uh, these touches of light and immortality that we can walk in. It will enable you to do what we're going to talk about here in a minute, which is to actually grow in your spiritual life. But Paul was suffering. And he says, yet I am not ashamed. That word ashamed is the same word in Hebrews where where, uh, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. He does not look at you and me. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Do you know that? Jesus, the Lord of all creation, looks at you and he says, man, I'm proud of you. I'm proud to call you my sister. I am proud to call you my brother. Isn't that remarkable? Why would he be proud to call us? And he knows all the junk that's in my heart. That he knows the things that I think and the things that I do and the things that I fail to do and all the things that I want to do and don't do. And he knows that I throw the 
hose thing across the yard. And he's like, man, I'm proud to call you my brother. When you... It's because he loves us. It's because he loves you. Not because of what you've done. That's what Paul just said. But because he gives you his grace. And it is grace that enables us to walk in this newness of life. It's not what you do that empowers you to do that. It is God himself who empowers you to do that. That's the grace. Now, he wants us to walk in it. It's not just that you sit there and just have grace poured out on you. He wants you to respond, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But it is not like try good, do better. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is that we are now under a new covenant. You have been given new life in Christ that by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus, by saying, I believe that God, uh, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. I believe that he paid the penalty for my sins and I trust him to save me. When that happens, the Bible calls it regeneration. You are dead in your sins. The Holy Spirit comes upon you and you are made new. You have a new life. And then you have to learn to walk in that life. Just like a baby has new life coming out of the womb, right? The baby didn't do much. They just cry, and they are a lot of work for the parents, and they make us all tired. And then, all of us were babies. Here we are. We've grown into adults, or in the, we're in the process of growing into adults. Some of us, I guess, are like me, oftentimes I act like a child sometimes by throwing something across the yard. But I'm in the process, right? You are in a process. But that whole thing is fueled by grace. It is not fueled by your self-effort. God does not say, I want you to give yourself power. I want you to love more. I want you to have more self-discipline. He says, I know you don't have those things, so I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you love. And I'm going to give you a spirit of self-discipline and self-control. Why? Because you don't have it. And you need it. And so grace gives us what we don't have so we can do what God wants us to do. So he is not ashamed. Why is he not ashamed? Because Paul could look at his life and say, I am a catastrophic failure. I've got years left. I should be out doing the things. I'm in jail. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my head cut off. Paul's life is anything but a failure. If you measure it on a, the scale of Jesus. Why is he not ashamed? Because I know whom I have believed. This looks back into Philippians where Paul is like, the goal of my life is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He knows Jesus. And no shame from anyone can ever budge that. If you know Jesus, no shame can touch you. Do you understand that? There's a reason that Romans 8.1 says, for there is now no condemnation, no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shame is not a part of the Christian life. Now, God uses guilt. When we do something bad, we feel bad, and he uses guilt to bring us to repentance. But shame is not a part of the Christian life. So if you are feeling shame about something and you are a believer, you need to transform your thinking and align it with the word of God and walk in the freedom that he's given you. Shame is not part of the gospel. And so he knows whom he has believed. And in knowing Christ, he can reject that shame. And secondly, he is convinced that he, Jesus, is able to do what? To guard or to keep or to protect what I have entrusted to him for that day. So there's lots of some questions about what does he mean by what is the thing that he's entrusted to Jesus? Is it, is it his gifts? Is it, is, it his, is it the gospel? Like he's, I know that he's able to keep the gospel until that day. And the, the, that day, by the way, is when you and I will stand before Jesus. That is that day. It's not like Thursday, and maybe it is Thursday, like, come Lord Jesus, I'm... I'm ready. But the, that day when you stand before the Lord, which everyone will do, he says he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him. He's getting ready to die. I think it's also probably Paul's life in general. I think it's the ministry that he has had, all that he has invested. So I want you to think about this. What is it in your life that you have entrusted to Christ? What is it? Is he able to keep it? Yes. Do you believe that, and then do you live like that is true? That is the question. You can say, I entrust stuff to Jesus, and then you spend 40 years trying to take it out of his hands. Why we do that? I don't know. He's really way better at guarding things than I am. I, I lose my keys all the time. I can't even keep up with life. Jesus holds all things together. 
He is the eternal God who has given us eternal grace, immortal life. He is able to guard what you've entrusted to him for that day. So, I want to challenge you with three things today, right? So, any mom who walks with the Lord wants one thing for their children. It's that they love the Lord. That's it. Like, if you get that, if a mom who walks with Jesus and loves Jesus can have anything for their children is that they love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love their neighbor as himself. That's it. Everything else is secondary to that because if that is not going on, none of the other stuff matters. You can be super successful, you make a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. If you do not love Jesus, you're not doing well. So in line with that, I want to encourage you in what it looks like to grow in your spiritual life. You have a spiritual life. I have a spiritual life and it can be neglected. We're gonna, he's, and he's encouraging Timothy here. And I'm going to, uh, in application of this, when he says fan into flame, the gift of God, I'm going to expand that out a little bit, I think, to include the spiritual life. Because I think it's, it's all in there. I don't think I'm being outside of what the text is saying. When I'm saying, let's rekindle your spiritual life. So what does that mean? What is rekindle? So the word actually for fan into flame or, or kindle fresh or rekindle is this is kind of this crazy um, compound word that's, that's made up of a, um, of, of a word that means uh, calling something, it's a preposition that means like upward movement, and then two words, uh, animal or beast, the word that we get the base zoo from, and the word for fire that we get the word pyro or pyrotechnics from. So it's like could literally be translated, which is the reason they don't translate it this, like, like, like re-up the fire beast, right? So that would be weird, and people would be like, the Bible doesn't make any sense. And so that's why it says, for this reason, fan into flame or rekindle. It was a very common word used during Paul's time for rekindling a fire. You see the fire, it's died down, it needs to be rekindled. If you've ever done a fire in the fireplace, in a fire pit, or gone camping, if you've never done any of those things, I encourage you to find some wood and find a place to burn it and do it. But he is talking about, you have a wood fire that's burned down, it needs to be rekindled. Kindling is little sticks. Kindling is not giant logs or giant split logs. You start a fire with kindling, often split, but small, little bitty things, small sticks. Kindling is a process where you have your fire, you have to have, you have to have heat, you have to have air, you have to have fuel. All those things are going, you have fire. If you take one of those things out, fire goes away. So without beating the metaphor or getting super too weird in the metaphor and who is what and whatever, uh, I mean, you could say that the air is the Holy Spirit and like the, the, the heat is like the fervor or the zeal of the believer. I don't know. Maybe. I don't want to get lost in that. What I want, do want to focus in on is what is this kindling process? What does it look like? So I'm going to make kindling. I'm going to define this this way. That kindling, that putting the kindling in the fire is the application of your faith in the truth of God's word. Okay. Putting kindling in the fire is the application of your trusting God's revelation of himself through the word, okay? So if God says he loves you, kindling is, is be, believing and putting trust in the truth of God's word, a promise he's given you. If he says that he's given you grace that uh, was before the beginning of time, measureless grace, you're going to believe that he does that, and you're going to make a choice to walk out the truth that God is teaching you through his word. If he says that he's given you not a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline, and putting kindling on that fire is, is trusting, instead of rekindling, retrusting in who God is through his word. What he says is true through the word. Does that make sense? So I want you to think about, okay, like evaluating, evaluating your spiritual life. If you're sitting there and you're camping and the fire is just roaring, that's awesome. Like all you got to do is you just keep feeding, just keep feeding it. Just feed the fire and it's going to go. You just put logs on it, you're good to go. It's when the fire dies down that you've got to rekindle it, right? You don't rekindle a bonfire. It just burns. You just add fuel, which is, in our illustration, is time in God's word and the application of, the, of God's word to your life. But I want you to think about what does your spiritual life look like right now? Does it need to be rekindled? Has it burned down? Every fire tends to die down. It's just a law of entropy, right? Fire, every fire tends to die down. Everyone. It must be maintained. It must be rekindled. It must be worked on. So your spiritual life, 
God has given us everything we need for life and godliness is a promise in, in Peter. And yet, he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does that look like? It looks like the application of the truth of God's word to your life. It sounds kind of ethereal or up here and all these things. So let's say Jesus says, okay, I want you to deny yourself, take your cross and follow me. Okay, great. Uh, for faith, okay, I feel like it's kind of burned down, Lord, so I'm gonna come here and we're gonna, I'm gonna apply. Great, this is true. Okay, I'm gonna deny myself. All right, what, is it? what does that look like, Lord? It's like, all right, next time you're in an argument with your wife, lose it on purpose. Well, I don't wanna do that, Lord. He's like, right, that's why I said to deny yourself because it's something you want to do. Next time you're in an argument with your wife, lose it on purpose. Why? To practice saying no to myself. Why? Because I want to take up my cross. I want to actually bear the burdens that God has given me to work in the life that he's given me. I want to bearing the cross in the picture of Christ is carrying out God's will for Jesus. He was carrying out the plan that he had for him. Okay, what does it look like? Well, it means that you don't run away from it. It means that you run into it. So maybe he wants you to talk to your neighbor about Jesus. Maybe he's calling you to do something. I don't know what he's calling you to do. Putting the kindling on the fire is the act of faith in the truth of God's word. So evaluate where your fire is at today. If it's roaring, keep it up. And you just keep shoveling logs onto that fire. If it's died down, like Timothy's I think probably was, rekindle that thing. And I want you to remember that kindling is small. It's not big sticks. It doesn't have to be some giant thing. Just the next thing that God calls you to do by faith, do it. Whatever that is. And if God is calling your heart and, and speaking to you right now about what it is that you should be doing by faith, do that next thing. And then the next time something comes up, do that next thing. And as you study God's word and he convicts your heart, do those things. Okay, so rekindle or retrust. Second is be audacious. Uh, I looked at this idea of, of shame and being ashamed and uh, shameless was kind of not the right word. I looked at bold, but I liked audacious. Audacious means, I had to get a look this up a definition because I think I know what it means, but then I read and it's not necessarily what I thought. It means to be intrepidly daring. Isn't that great? Intrepidly daring and willing, uh, willing to have surprisingly, to take surprisingly bold risks. Willing to take surprisingly bold risks. Is your spiritual life intrepidly daring? Or is it like, Timid. If it's timid, that's not the spiritual life God gave you. God gave you a spiritual life of power and of love and of self-discipline. The timid spiritual life is not the life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not a life lived in surrender to Jesus. The timid spiritual life is the life lived in the flesh and is not a life lived by faith. So we need to be audacious in our what? in our testimony about our Lord. Ugh, right? Why does this, why do people keep, why does the Bible keep telling me to tell people about Jesus? You know why? Because they're lost and they don't know unless someone tells them. How will they know unless someone tells them the good news? You can say, oh, well, all they got to do is open their Bible. Do they? Do they have a Bible? The lady I get donuts from every Sunday to come in here. I go into the lady and I just asked her today because I'm doing this. I'm like, hey, are you a, do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? And she's like, or do you go to church anywhere? Ask her those questions. Throw them all out there. Maybe one of them will stick, right? So she goes, she was like, I don't go to church, but I believe in God and I talk to him all the time and I need help. I'm Korean, she said, and I don't know about a lot of those things, but I know that people in the church have hurt me so bad I don't go to church anywhere. Man. Does she need encouragement? Does she need the testimony of Jesus? Yes. Now, did I give it, did I like open up Romans to her then? No. I just bought the donuts and I said, I'm so sorry that you've been hurt and I'm gonna be back next week. I'm gonna build a relationship with this lady. I don't know her name yet. I've met her like 17 times. I don't know her name. She gives, she gives Keegan like free donut holes. She's amazing. And she's just so kind. And so Keegan asked me, he was like, hey, did, I wonder if she's a Christian. I was like, I'll ask her because I'm studying this preaching and I can't just not do it. Be audacious in your faith. 
That doesn't mean that you like wear a sandwich board and go down to town hall and do something or go to the Capitol building and do something. I don't mean that, like don't burn anything, don't be mean, don't be a jerk, don't break anything or hurt anybody, please. I just mean tell people about Jesus. Tell people what he has done and who he is. If we all just did that, glory, right? How much good would get done if each of us told every one of our neighbors that Jesus loves them and that he died for their sins and rose from the grave and if they have any questions, they come talk to me about it. To invite somebody to come read the Bible with you. We need to be audacious and not have a spirit of fear. How many times have you not said something that the Lord was leading you to tell somebody because you were afraid of how they would respond? You're afraid of getting canceled. You're afraid someone will say something mean about you on Instagram or Twitter. I mean, really? Paul was in a hole in the ground getting ready to get pulled up to get his head cut off. And I don't want to tell somebody about Jesus because I don't want the lady at the donut shop to think I'm weird. I mean, come on. Be audacious. Be intrepidly daring in your testimony about Jesus. I don't want you to be intrepidly daring about a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. I want you to be intrepidly daring, to be willing to take, what is the word that I said, surprisingly bold risks in testifying about the work and the person of Jesus. How? Because God's given you a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And he's given you the grace to do everything that he calls you to do. Finally this, I want you to to know and to trust Jesus. When he says, I'm not ashamed because I know what I've believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Oh, I love this verse. So this idea that everything in Paul's life, every confidence that he had came from knowing Jesus. So my question to you is, do you know him? How do you know Jesus? You know him through his word. How do you know me? You sit down and you talk with me. And we talk. We get to know each other. We do stuff together. Jesus has given us his word. He's revealed himself to us through the Bible. And I can read it and know him. And then I can serve other people. Jesus has come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened. And I will give you rest. Not sleep. Not sleep. I will give you rest. And then what does he say? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. The most rested soul in the world is one that is working hard, yoked to Jesus. You see that? It's not about taking a nap. I'm all for naps, by the way. If you get a chance to take a nap today, gosh, take one, please. Especially on Mother's Day. I mean, mamas, take a nap, please. But the idea of working with Jesus is not like slave driving. He yokes himself to us. And then he gives us, look at this, infinite, immeasurable, eternal grace and empowers us with it to work alongside him, to know him, and then to trust him more. You're going to hear me say this about a million times. Uh, and I'll tell you why, is because the one goal, if I do anything right in this church, it is this, that you would have had something with me that I guess I don't have here anymore. My one goal is this. I've got other goals. To get every single person in this church involved in a regular time of Bible study and prayer. That's it. If I got every person in this church, every single one of you, if you can hear my voice, even if you're not in this church and you're listening on a podcast later, I mean you, involved in a regular, nourishing time with God in his word, where you're reading the Bible and you're studying it and you're praying. That's it. 15 minutes a day. Five days a week. That's when we designed our entire Bible reading plan around 15 minutes a day, five days a week. If you do the math on that, that's 75 minutes a week. You know how many minutes there are in a week? I didn't know how to Google it. 10,080 minutes. So if you ramp that up and you do an extra minute every five days, that means you spend 80 minutes a week reading your Bible and praying. That gives you 10,000 minutes to do whatever. So don't tell me you don't have time. That excuse does not work. Oh, we're so busy. No, you're not. Busy doing the wrong stuff. Oh, I'm too tired. I don't care. I'm tired too. Read your Bible. Oh, well, I don't know how. Ah, I will teach you. If, you are reading, if you're like, I don't know how to study the Bible, I will teach you how to study the Bible. 
My email is brandon at thevineokc.com, okay? You can go to the website, you can click on about, go to staff, you'll see some dorky picture of me in the mountains looking goofy. You click on my face, send me an email, say, Brandon, I don't know how to study the Bible. I'll give you the language. The title can say Bible study. And in the thing you say, hey, in your sermon, you said you'd help me study the Bible, so help me. Send, boom. You can take out your phone right now and do it if you want to. If you don't know how to study the Bible, learn. If you didn't know how to read and you needed to read to live, would you learn to read? You didn't know how to walk either. And all of you walked in here. You didn't know how to wipe your own bottom? Here you are. Okay? I don't know. Maybe you don't know how to do that still. But you didn't know how to cut something with a knife and a fork. You didn't know how to write. You didn't, there's a bazillion things that you've learned to do. And you can learn to study the Bible for yourself. And I will teach you. If that is the only hurdle to you doing a regular Bible study... I will, I will stop everything else I'm doing and I will sit down with you or a group of you and I will teach you how to study the Bible. Because the one, one main goal I have is to get everybody in this church doing that. If you're already doing it, if you've already got a plan, if you've already got like, man, I'm, I'm reading through the Bible. I read through the Bible six times in a year. Glory, awesome. You're like, no, I read through and I like, I chart it out. And I'm like, yay, hallelujah, teach somebody else to do that. If you don't know how, or if you don't know what to do, we have a Bible reading plan. It's a piece of paper. It's out there. It's by the iPads. It's out on the little table. We're starting Mark this week. We just finished Ruth. We just slogged our way through Judges, which is just a brutal book. And we read Ruth, which is a beautiful book. And now we're in Mark, which is like gospel. Ugh, yes, it's so good. We're starting Mark tomorrow. So if you're not currently doing something, I am imploring you in the name of Jesus to read the Bible and to spend time with him doing it. Okay. All this to say, I talked way too long. Now we get to take communion, which is this beautiful picture of what it looks like to live out the redemption and the grace that Christ has given us. So in this table is this great picture of what Jesus did. And he took this table and he sat down with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And he looked at them and he taught them to do this beautiful thing that we do regularly. And he grabbed the bread before them and he said, this bread is my body broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he filled it. And he said, this is the cup. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins that every time you do this, you proclaim my death until I return. This table is a battle cry against the death and the destruction and the despair of our world. It is a declaration that Jesus died on the cross. It is blood paid for our sins and that we have new immortal life in him. It is not a denominational table. It is for anyone who confesses the Lord Jesus as their savior. And so as you come up here today, I want to remind you that Paul gives us this great exhortation in Colossians, in 1 Corinthians 11, not to come to this table just haphazardly. Don't just come up here because that's what we do Take this moment and confess your heart to him. Confess your sin to him. Come to him and you will find him faithful and gracious and good and true. Take this moment that God has given us as a regular thing that we do. Bring your heart before the Lord and ask him to help you to walk well with him. We will have uh, servers in the front and in the back. We do, we do communion by a method of intinction, which means you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, if you drop it in the cup, no worries. Just don't fish it out. Grab a new piece of bread. It's okay. And we will have a gluten-free options up here for anybody who has that need. And so I invite our servers to come up. And uh, I'm going to pray for us while we get ready to take communion. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for your great love for us, for the joy that you give us and the new life that you give us. I thank you for just your tenderness toward us and how well you love us. And I ask that as we take communion, Lord, that you would help us to remember who you are, remember how good you have been to us, and to remember that you died on a cross and rose from the dead, but that we are under a new covenant right now, and that we can walk in the newness of life that you have won for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
one for us and the forgiveness of our sins on the cross by your death and resurrection. We thank you for the call that you have called us to, to rekindle this life that you've given us, to add to what you have given us, Lord, the response to the truth of your word. We ask that as we go throughout this week, Lord Jesus, that you would just continue to help us, Lord. Help us to recall what you have called us to. Help us to remember that you have empowered us, Lord Jesus, to walk in this great life that you have promised us. We commit the rest of this time as we respond to you and worship, Lord Jesus. Help us sing our praises to our King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. love for us how vast 
just beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as my the chosen one bring many sons to glory as wounds which my the chosen one bring many sons to glory Yeah. 
Hallelujah. Quick reminder, if you need to do, uh, if you're doing Vine Kids stuff, go sign up out there. And this week, don't know what's going to happen this week, but whatever it is that you are afraid of, make that the kindling on the fire of your spiritual life. Give it over to the Lord and let his spirit consume it in holy fire. Trust him. Walk with him. Get in his word. Be audacious in your faith and use every ounce of your life and energy to know the risen Christ this week and go in peace.